This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So welcome. It's good to see some familiar faces, and as Sharon said, it's good to see some new faces. Um, as she said, my name is Drew. I'm available at drew at imsb.org if you have any questions about the talk or would like to pursue any of the things that I bring up. Uh, by way of background, very brief background, more of a disclaimer on me. I'm kind of a renegade. Um, I just recently heard Gil Fransal talk, and he was referring to a talk he had given previously. Um, and I gather, I didn't hear the previous talk, something about ease and using ease as your teacher and that when you establish your practice and establish a sense of ease in relation to your conduct, when something arises that gives you a sense of unease, something inside you is telling you you're not on track. Um, And I I felt that that was particularly beneficial to thinking about the precepts and working with the precepts and bringing them into to our lives. Um, he also said that he did not mean the talk to be that Buddhism is about making a bunch of middle-class suburban Californians feel more comfortable with themselves. You know, as he thought that Buddhism was in fact a little bit um, subversive. And I like that idea. <laughs> I think um, certainly the Buddhism that I have gravitated toward over the decades I've been involved with Buddhism is in fact subversive. Um, I consider myself a secular Buddhist. I don't worship the Buddha. I don't, for example, I don't believe in rebirth. That That's something that doesn't speak to me personally. Um, and I've begun to question a lot of the received wisdom of the what we understand to be Buddhism here in 21st century coastal California. So I may be saying some things that will be unfamiliar to you that perhaps don't sound right or you're not comfortable with. Um, as I say, please feel free to get in touch with me if you have any questions. So as Sharon said, we're in the flow of a series on the precepts. Does anybody not know what the precepts are? Okay, so there are five precepts, and I think I have them here. (laughs) Um, Basically, uh, the first is non-harming, not killing other living beings. Um, Oh dear. Uh, The second is not stealing, not taking that which is not freely given. The third is not engaging in sexual misconduct, which I will expand on a bit this evening. 
Um, the fourth is not engaging in harmful or harsh speech. Uh, and the fifth is not indulging in intoxicants or partaking of substances that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So that's the, the frame for the talk. And the precepts are stated as guidelines for behavior, for outward behavior. In fact, non-behavior, the behaviors that we're supposed to refrain from. The usual term is, I vow to abstain from killing any living beings. I vow to abstain from taking what is not given. And yet the Buddha said very clearly that karma was intention, was will. So there's, there's sort of a disconnect. And part of it, I think, comes from the fact that our outward behaviors arise from our thoughts and our intentions. We have to, well, we don't have to, we do act inadvertently in some instances, but a lot of times when it seems to us we're acting inadvertently, we're acting out of habit, we're acting out of ingrained thought and intention. And the thought and intention is just there running in the background. Um, and also, uh, in my research, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that the precepts are in fact guidelines for mental training, that we use our behaviors to reflect back and guide the mind and to purify the mind. So I'd like you to keep that in mind for this evening's talk and for the other talks about the precepts, that they are framed in terms of behaviors and prescribed and proscribed behaviors, um, but also that they are mental trainings. So that said, um, given the power of unwholesome mind states, it's very helpful to have fairly crisp and clean um, guidelines. And uh, as is always the case, when I'm preparing a talk, everything <laughs> seems to be related to the talk. So I was looking at the Times the other day, and there was an article about the interim president of Brazil and the fact that he writes poetry, and they printed one of his poems. And I think this is germane. It's entitled Red. I guess he wrote it in Brazilian Portuguese. This is in English. Of red fiery flames of fire, brilliant eyes which smile with scarlet lips, Fires, they take hold of me, of my mind, my soul, all mine in heat, my body on fire, consumed, dissolved. Finally, ashes are left that I spread on the bed to sleep. So we're familiar with, you know, the sex appeal in, in literature, and I think that... Um, there's there's so much in the news <laughs> of about you know Roger Ailes and Fox you know is it the opportunities the invitations for sexual misconduct are enormous so um, it's helpful to have guidelines um, 
I gave a talk, I don't know, a year or so ago about the, the guardians, and I compared them to the bumpers on the bumper car ride, you know, and you get over too far and you bounce off of that bumper and you get over too far in the other direction, you bounce off of that bumper. So these, these precepts are kind of bumper guides. And the five precepts actually encapsulate all of Buddhist morality, which is non-theological, non-theistic. There is no creator God in Buddhism, to give a commandment. So the precepts are not commandments, they're just guidelines. And they're founded on the idea of harmony. So we have intrapersonal harmony within ourselves, at peace in ourselves, and interpersonal harmony, at peace with others and in the society. And the precepts are intended to foster that harmony. And the ultimate goal of the precepts and in fact of all Buddhist practice is freedom. And I want to expand on that more later, but just hold that thought. So um, I mentioned I was, I consider myself a secular Buddhist, and in my research I came across uh, a distinction between ethnic religion and what the writer called absolute religion. I would like to just back off absolute religion and say secular Buddhism. Ethnic religion is a religion that is embedded in, arises from an ethnos, a people. And the ethnic religions were basically tribal and concerned with the um, biological and cultural reproduction of the tribe, the perpetuation of the tribe. And a great deal of what is in the canon is effectively tribal religion. It, it arose from the place and the time and the culture in which the Buddha lived and in which his inheritors lived for the next six centuries until the canon was closed. Um, and that place and time and those cultures are different from today. So there's going to be some lack of fit between the, the canon, the texts, and our concerns, our needs today. Um, secular Buddhism, uh, I, I do believe is a religion of sorts. Religions are things that cultures, that human beings produce that address what Stephen Batchelor calls ultimate concerns. So the fact of our birth, the fact of our death, the question of how to live a good life in between those two events are matters of enormous importance culturally and individually and religions help us to take a stance in relation to those questions. But secular, the word secular comes from the Latin seculum, this age, this time, this generation. 
So a secular religion, a secular Buddhism, is concerned with the area between birth and death. I'm not going to be talking about rebirth. I'm not going to be talking about how to uh, work toward a more fortunate rebirth. I'm going to be talking about living your life here and now in this body. So historically, um, the third precept uh, is expanded beyond just the basic I vow to abstain from. And it forbids rape, abduction, and adultery. And Buddhaghosa, um, a brilliant commentator on the canon, um, basically, uh, as I understand it, wrote the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, um, in the 4th century BCE. So this is relatively shortly after the, the Buddha's life. He was very conservative, um, very much a man of his time and place, and it was all about men. Um, it absolutely forbade homosexuality. It forbade sex with 20 different categories of women and effectively outlawed every, all sex outside of marriage. And for monks, of course, all sex of any description, period. End of discussion. So um, translating that precept into 21st century sensibility requires a little bit of creativity. All the precepts, I think, uh, today are, are basic principles, not legalistic rules. They're not commandments. They're not even legal rules. But one, I'm, I'm going to talk about a number of different ways we can approach the precepts. We can begin to understand them or take a stance, a perspective in relation to them. And one of the most obvious is in terms of restraint and contentment. So the precepts themselves are phrased in terms of restraint. I will abstain from sexual misconduct. So what we, rest- what we abstain from is any conduct that is based on violence, manipulation, or deceit. So if we think about the way the other precepts are phrased, any conduct that leads to suffering for ourselves or others. So that's the touchstone. That's the foundation for the harmony and leading to the freedom. The contentment is just the obverse of that. So the restraint is the negative formulation, which is closest to the canonical formulation. We should uh, engage in conduct that involves loving kindness, generosity, honesty, mental, emotional clarity, So each of the other four precepts can be stated in in those terms. Um, We should be concerned with cultivating stillness, simplicity, contentment. In short, any conduct that produces good results for ourselves and others. So that's sort of the broadest brush. Zeroing in on the third precept, I found in my research two what I I think of as lenses that I think are are powerful and helpful for analysis and for applying them 
in our lives. The first, which we've touched on, is in terms of the four other precepts. So specifically, in our sexual lives, if we act non-violently, which includes not engaging in rape, obviously, but in even rape in marriage or a committed relationship, um, violent or misogynistic uh, pornography, so if we, if we touch into, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but if, if we touch into potential sexual behaviors and ask, is there violence involved here? Um, is that an ethical uh, area for sexual expression in our life? The second precept, not taking what is not freely given, um, I think, of course, that would be coercive sex, even in a committed relationship or a marriage. Um, I think that would include sexual harassment, uh, not assuming that another person is there as a sexual object for you or someone to make sexual remarks to, right? So not taking what is not freely given. Uh, the fourth precept um, Right speech, not engaging in harmful speech, uh, no deceit. Um, it's almost impossible to have an affair outside of a committed relationship without deceit. You know, are we being honest? Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later on. Uh, the fourth one, obviously, intoxicants we do all kinds of stupid stuff when we're intoxicated and that's why it's a precept and we certainly do stupid stuff in relation to intoxicants and sex just briefly one of the ones that ed reminded me about is the young man at stanford brock turner um the ripples the ramifications the repercussions of this stupid action. You know, he was a a talented swimmer. He lost his swimming scholarship. He lost his chance at the Olympics. Um, The judge that gave him a light sentence was subject to a recall. 1.4 million signatures asking for his recall. Stanford's reputation was damaged. The protests that arose from this and in response to the victim's letter caused repercussions in campuses across the country and various other administrators had to step down or, you know, uh, a young woman who was a childhood friend of Turner uh, and a member of a band wrote a character reference letter not knowing this would be a, uh, become public record. And when it did, all kinds of People canceled their bookings for her band, and the Times said they, they basically became a pariah band. And there's staggering costs, financial costs, to the victims' families after something like this. So just drinking and driving don't mix, and drinking and sexual <laughs> misconduct really don't mix. You know, it's, it's um, the harm the the lack of harm, harmony and the potential suffering that can arise, um, not abiding by the fourth precept in relation to the third precept is tremendous. 
So looking at those four other um, precepts in, in relation to our sexual lives pretty much handles it. But because sexual energy is so powerful, so strong, so deeply rooted in the brain, it deserves a precept of its own. Just look at the Brazilian interim president's poem. Yeah. So um, the other lens that I found that I, I thought was absolutely tremendously powerful um, is studying it in relation to the Eightfold Path. And this one I got from a talk by Gil Fronstall, and I will just be scratching the surface. If anybody wants the talk, send me an email. I'll send you the link. Um, so the, eight, the Eightfold Path, uh, basically right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. For those of us who are into Buddhists' list, this is very familiar. For some of us, this is, what is he talking about? You know, but um, we're going to take it step by step, and I've massaged it a bit. I've, I've cribbed it pretty uh, shamelessly. But um, the, the first one is, would be, I think, sufficient for a lifelong inquiry into any of the precepts in relation to right view, and certainly this one. And um, I have shoehorned in some of my secular Buddhism into this interpretation, and I'll touch on that when I get there. So right view is fundamentally the um, correct application of the perspective of the four truths of Buddhism. The, the Buddha's Four Truths. And I've mentioned Stephen Batchelor already. Um, he's probably better known for a short volume, Buddhism Without Beliefs. Um, he's written quite a few books. This, I think, is his most recent, After Buddhism. And um, Ed and I had the wonderful opportunity to go on a pilgrimage with Stephen and his wife Martine in Sri Lanka at the beginning of the year and literally sit at his feet. And um, uh, it was a very powerful experience. It's, it's, there's a lot of good stuff in this book. So there, there are the four truths, but if you read the suttas, the earliest suttas in which the four truths are enumerated, there are also four tasks. And I've talked about that before, um, Let's see, embrace, the, the talk I gave before was embrace, let go, stop, act. Okay, so the verbs that Stephen is using now are understand, abandon, behold, and cultivate. So I want to open these up as I talk about each of the truths in relation to the third precept. So the, the first um, question, the first truth is about the, the truth of suffering, dukkha. Suffering exists in, in our lives. It's not that life is suffering, but suffering is inescapable. 
it's, it's built in, it's inherent, it's systemic, it's structural. But there's also added suffering. And the question is, is there any actual or potential suffering for ourselves or others connected to our sexual behaviors? So this relates back to the considerations from the perspective of the other four precepts, but a very powerful one, you know. Are we setting ourselves up to cause suffering for ourselves or others with this behavior we're contemplating or engaged in or regretting? having engaged in. And the task related to the first truth is to understand suffering, to comprehend it. So comprehend, come is with, and prehend is grasp. It's the same prehend of the prehensile tail on a monkey. So it's not just, oh yeah, I get it. It's not a simple intellectual, oh yeah, I understand. But it's viscerally, experientially grasping, comprehending, embracing the fact of suffering in our lives and taking a stance in relation to the inescapable structural suffering and the commitment to try to not augment the suffering through our behaviors. Huge. The second truth is the truth of craving, and the question is to notice any craving or compulsion connected with our sexual desire. Hello? Yeah, so we're supposed to notice it. And the task related to craving is to abandon suffering by letting go of craving. And one of the things that Stephen said on the pilgrimage that I found tremendous, because for me, letting go as gently as I tried to do it, almost always had a sense of pushing away. There was aversion. There was a hook in the trying to let go that made it not go away. (laughs) And he said, think of it as let flow. That it's the craving is really very deep brain. It's, it's hard not to experience craving. Certainly for, for sexual expression, um, it's part of keeping the species going. I mean, if we hadn't had craving for sex, we wouldn't be here, you know. The species would have died out a long time ago. So acknowledge that the cravings are probably going to arise. Can we let them flow through us? We don't grab onto them and act reflexively 
in relation to the craving which has arisen. And the third truth is the truth of of cessation of suffering. And the idea in relation to the third precept is learn to recognize, even if only as a potential, the possibility of the cessation of suffering connected with our sexual desires. So, as I mentioned, some of it is structural and some of it is we add second dart suffering to the the first dart. The task is, Stephen is translating these days as beholding the ceasing, to see clearly, fully, experientially the ceasing. And he says, beholding the ceasing is synonymous with becoming aware of nirvana. And I want to spend some time towards the end of my talk talking more about nirvana. But beholding the ceasing of craving is equivalent to becoming aware of nirvana. If you've ever been in the grip of lust and felt it, the fever break, you know what he's talking about. Right? And the last uh, truth is the path, the Eightfold Path, and the idea in relation to the third precept is to embark on this sort of training regimen of mental spiritual development to bring this understanding, letting go, and beholding to fulfillment. And simply stated, the the task in the canon related to the fourth truth is to cultivate the path. So the second truth is right intention. And intentions are basically motivations and here in relation to the third precept, it's avoiding three forms of wrong motivation, cruelty, ill will, and lust, duh. Um, Cruelty, we mentioned above, any form of rape or, or coercive sex or inflicting pain on one's partner. Ill will, any anger-driven action in relation to sexual behavior, uh, dominance or ignoring a partner's wishes or limits, and lust, obviously, just allowing the experience of our desire to overwhelm our, our rational thought and, and our, our consideration and respect for our partner. Um, so stated in, in the positive way, so re- restraint and contentment, um, having our sexual behaviors modified, motivated by compassion, loving kindness. And this, this is a very sweet word, but a little tricky in contemporary culture. Compassion, loving kindness, and 
renunciation. Renunciation. So having our intimate lives infused with these intentions um, is really a beautiful vehicle for communicating love, care, respect for our partner and deepening our intimate relationship with our partner. Um, There was a great quote from Gill's talk um, in, in relation to right intention and the third precept. He said, spiritual freedom is not being free to act on our desires. It is being free to choose wisely which desires to act on. So that's, I think, where the idea of renunciation comes in. And again, another unusual use of freedom. So I want to circle back to freedom in a few minutes. Uh, The third um, path factor is right speech. Uh, We we touched on this in relation to the the precepts in in understanding of the third precept. We we really have to be honest. We, We have to strive not to be deceitful in in our sexual lives in in our sexual behaviors um, and Gill points out even in a relationship where it appears there is no evident sexual misconduct that you could put your finger on, if there isn't honesty between the partners um, it's not really functioning as part of the path. And I would expand this to respectful speech, not only to your partner, but to others and about others. You know, no sexual innuendo about somebody behind their back. Um, Participating in sexually charged jokes at work or gossip, or, you know, the, the whole idea of harassment. Um, just moving toward trying to lead a life of integrity and transparency and honesty in all things, but certainly in relation to our sexual lives in our speech. Right, action is usually termed, uh, phrased in terms of not taking what is not given, the the second precept. And we touched on this, uh, not forcing sexual attentions on someone, even an intimate partner. You know, if, if it's not, no means no. And that's not just date rape. That's period. And it just... If your intimate partner says, not tonight, honey, it's not tonight, honey, right? Right livelihood. I think this goes back to sexual harassment, but larger, um, Gil says, right livelihood in relation to the third precept is not participating in the economic life of our society without causing harm, or participating in life without causing harm. 
So we do not pay for sex. We do not buy pornography. We do not engage in a line of work that perpetuates harmful sexual behavior or attitudes. Um, We do not facilitate sexual exploitation or dehumanization of others. Um, Probably for most of us that is several steps removed. But, you know, are we... Uh, in a, in our um, in our work lives, does any of this impinge on us through colleagues, um, other business investments, you know, whatever? Right effort. Now we're moving into the concentration factors of the path. Right effort involves cultivation of skillful positive states of mind and um, obviously happiness, contentment, calmness, compassion, equanimity. But the role of these in relation to the third precept is if we have cultivated these states of mind, we are much less likely to turn to sexual behavior in order to fill a sense of emptiness or a sense of anxiety or depression we are more content in ourselves with ourselves and sexual behavior is less likely to come up. This goes back to um, my... It made me think of Gill's talk about ease and how ease can be a teacher. So when we are feeling unease and feeling inclined to do something questionable in relation to sexual behavior, there's probably a, a tremor of, hmm, maybe, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. So, um, again, I, I didn't write this down, but um, the way the universe pre- presents me with lots of opportunities to think about my talk, I'm, I subscribe to A Word A Day. Rex Naden, one of the members of our community, recommended the, the site to me. And at the bottom, every day, there is the thought for the day. And it's always a quote from someone whose birthday was that day. And I think it was today's quote was from... Uh, ever the master of nuance and innuendo, uh, Ernest Hemingway. And he said um, something along the lines of, moral behavior is that which leaves you feeling good after you've done it. Immoral behavior is that which leaves you feeling bad after you've done it. You know, so I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but a good place to start. Um, So with this, again, this right effort and this sense of ease around our behavior as as guideline, as teacher, um, I think we'll be protected somewhat. Right mindfulness. Lord knows we're all into mindfulness these days. Um, Gill's statement of this was so perfect, I I couldn't come up with a good paraphrase. I'm just going to quote it. Sexual behavior and sexual relationships are among the most complicated, multifaceted aspects of our inner psychological life and outer interpersonal life. 
Sex and sexuality involve hormones, social conditioning, beliefs, motivation, emotions, and the mysterious activity of chemistry between people. Sex is seldom about simple pleasure. To be mindful of our sexuality is to begin to unpack all the complexity it comes with. As the different aspects of this complex do are seen clearly, we can learn where our freedom is found in relationship to it. Again, mindfulness, clear seeing. And finally, right concentration, developing a mind that has a strong sense of integration and wholeness. This is very similar to right effort. One is less likely to be acting out of neediness. Um, Meditation, Sexual intimacy uh, can, as we are uh, progress in in our meditation practice, sexual intimacy can be a means of conveying love and respect. And one of the other uh, websites I I used in my research, um, to paraphrase the guy, he said, I think Buddhist practice and meditation training probably improves our sex lives by keeping our heart, mind, and body in the same place at the same time. I thought that was a good one. So, again, there's there's a huge amount of material. Um, there's not going to be a quiz. Uh, very, very rich stuff to, to contemplate. Um, I wanted to spend, I mentioned I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking further about freedom and about nirvana. So bachelor rights in relation to freedom, there is no such thing as freedom per se. There's only freedom from constraints or freedom to act in ways that were not possible because of those constraints. And here he's using the word constraints to apply not to the precepts, but to the constraints of our habitually constrained actions, thoughts and actions that we are hemmed in by our habits of thinking and intending and acting. So the freedom that arises from applying the precepts to our lives opens up greater possibilities. Goes back to that quote, that I mentioned in terms of renunciation from Gill. Um, spiritual freedom is not being free to act on our desires. It's being free to choose wisely which desires to act on. So it's a slightly different take on freedom. But once we have cultivated wholesome mind states and wise action, then we are free to act spontaneously in ways that will not give us cause for regret. And then I wanted to spend just a few minutes on the idea of nirvana in Pali Nibbana. Some of you may know my partner is teaching himself Pali. So I'm steeped in Pali. Um, And in the... 
the Pali English Dictionary, copyright 1921. This idea has been around for a while. Talking about nirvana, the, the term before the Buddha started using it the way he used it simply meant cooling down. So you could the, take a pot off the fire and let the stew nibbana. So it's not an esoteric word originally. So here, fire may be put out by water or may go out of itself from lack of fuel. The ethical state called Nibbana can only rise from within. It is therefore, in the older texts, compared to the fire going out rather than the fire being put out. Maybe the Brazilian interim president should check out Nibbana. So going back to Bachelor's comment about becoming aware of Nirvana, he says that one can become aware of Nirvana whenever greed, hatred, and delusion are inactive. So if we're concerned about a secular Buddhism, a Buddhism, a Buddhist practice for this life, in this body, we are enjoined to look for moments when the heart-mind is at rest. And I bet you if you cast your mind back over the past week or start paying attention in the coming week, you're going to find there are moments when you don't seem to be seized by greed, hatred, or delusion. That's a moment, a glimpse, a becoming aware of nirvana. So Bachelor again. Nirvana, therefore, does not refer to the attainment of a transcendent absolute state apart from the conditions of life, but to the possibility of living here and now, emancipated from the inclinations of desire, hatred, and delusion. A life not conditioned by these instincts and drives would be an enriched one. No longer would one be the victim of paralyzing habits. One would be freed to respond to circumstances in fresh, unimpeded ways. So if we really take the precepts to heart and apply them, we open up this whole realm of potential action beyond what we would ordinarily enact out of our habits. And finally, this one really touched me. Again, from the Pali English Dictionary of 1921. This is not new news. Nibbana 
is purely and solely an ethical state to be reached in this birth by ethical practices, contemplation, and insight. It is therefore not transcendental. The first and most important way to reach Nibbana is by means of the Eightfold Path. And all expressions which deal with the realization of emancipation from lust, hatred, and illusion apply to practical habits and not to speculative thought. Nibbana is realized in one's heart. So let's just have just a few minutes of silence. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.